podcast where we have conversations about mental health in the most down-to-earth, normal way possible. This is a continuation, of course, of me and Andre and our um, attempt to see if we can conceptualize of a religion that would actually be good for the world. This is actually a special, special episode. Andre has this cousin named Vishnu Sisahai, who is uh, someone who is really close with his first cousin, uh, someone who I've actually only had an opportunity to talk to twice, uh, This including, <laughs> including this podcast right here, but he's somebody who I heard a lot about sort of all through childhood and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, Vishnu is a really incredible guy, brilliant, absolutely brilliant, comes from a family of artists, uh, sort of began his storytelling odyssey at the age of seven by winning a citywide prestigious storytelling competition held annually in New York City, excelled academically, particularly in the sciences, and he completed degrees in computer science and applied mathematics from Cornell University's College of Engineering. Um, And after the dot-com fallout, he returned to storytelling, attended NYU's film MFA program, but after one semester, left school to produce his first short film and has been telling stories and, uh, you know, making a visual art ever since. He's also a highly accomplished martial artist and all around genius and good guy. Uh, so if you want to learn more about him, I, you know, just Google him. You'll find, you'll find his IMDB page as well as all sorts of other things and have a chance to kind of get to know him a little bit there. But, uh, but yeah, uh, it's sort of funny. I mean, he, Vishnu went to Cornell university, which is up in Ithaca, New York. And I went to Ithaca college up in Ithaca, New York. And uh, Cornellians used to kind of brag on us Ithaca College people because Cornell is, of course, an Ivy League school and a lot of really, really smart people go there. And Ithaca College is a great school, but not an Ivy League school. So they used to kind of, uh, at least when I was there, at least when I was there, kind of uh, chidingly refer to us as uh, IK, Ithaca College. It's sort of sort of funny that uh, I think about that now because uh, this conversation, as you'll see, is pretty intense. He, he brings some brilliant ideas along the way. And I got to tell you, if you listen to this episode and come out the other end, not understanding anything that we talked about, you are not alone because I think I might be there with you. As a matter of fact, uh, the next time Andre and I record will be tomorrow. And the first thing we're going to talk about is uh, what the heck Vishnu meant by all the things that he said in this episode. I swear to you, like the episode ended and I thought for sure that I understood what he was talking about. You'll even hear me at the end talk about like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me. Then listening back to it, I was like, did it though? Like, does it? Did it make a lot of sense to me? Because I'm not so sure it did. So, oh, goodness gracious. I'm interested to see like what y'all think of this episode, if anyone listens to this. And uh, if you try to listen to this and don't get it, uh, don't worry about it. You are definitely not alone. But it is interesting. It's definitely interesting. We are sort of, in this episode, trying to figure out if there's a gateway towards understanding how religion and science can be kind of combined into a thing, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me why religion and government should be separate, you know, separate church and state. I think it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, it's too much authority laden in religion to connect it to state. 
you know, and so it absolutely should be disconnected from state. But the whole idea that religion and science should be two separate things is a little less intuitive for me. I mean, on one hand, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because religion feels like myth and science feels like fact. And so myth and fact, you know, don't, don't mix, right? You don't want myth to be mixed up in fact. And in as much as fact can be mixed up in myth, it does seem like myth would only distort fact, you know? So it does seem to make sense on one hand that we should keep science and religion separate. However, on the other hand, there is something really similar to the way in which religion function, functions and the way in which science functions. I mean, you know, both are in many ways, uh, well, in every way, a search for deeper knowledge. You know, religion kind of searches for deeper knowledge and deeper wisdom and understanding. And science searches for deeper knowledge and deeper understanding of the universe. So both are very similar in terms of what, in many ways, their, some of their end goals are. The other piece is, you know, throughout history, there has, in fact, been a lot of science in religion. You know, I mean, think about, you know, what, what the book of Genesis does and that it is the telling of the story of the creation of the universe, right? I mean, that's a science story. It's not a scientific story, but it's a science story. And that's what religion's trying to do. You know, think about other faiths where you have things like reading tea leaves, you know, in order to understand the type of decision a person can make. You know, that is in some ways a scientific process. And one might say that chemistry comes from alchemy. And when you look at the history of the Catholic Church, it's hard not to at least recognize that some of the earliest scientists were monks and priests, you know, and some of the important discoveries that they made. And indeed, when you even listen to some incredible scientists talk about the things that they're passionate about, man, they, they sure do sound prophetic. You know, go on YouTube and search out really any video of Carl Sagan speaking. And Carl Sagan, by the way, is going to come up in this episode. But go on any episode and, you know, go, go on any video on YouTube and listen to Carl Sagan speaking. And it's hard not to hear a prophetic voice in just the way that he presents you know, or Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, go and listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson talk. I mean, that man is preaching with the way he teaches. You know, he, he, he sounds like a prophet. So I don't think the line between religion and science is so clear and Billy, you know, so, so clear. It's not so obvious. And so I guess the question that, you know, we're trying to explore here is whether or not there indeed is an opportunity to think about turning science and religion into something of a Venn diagram, right? That two different things that are crossing over each other in, in some interesting ways. So we're kind of exploring that idea. And what had, what had happened was Andre and his cousin Vishnu were having a conversation and Vishnu started sort of bringing some stuff up. And Andre said, uh, oh, wait, let me do it like Andre. Andre said, uh, yo, uh, you should, uh, you should think about coming on this pod, man. I mean, I mean, let's have this conversation on the pod. I don't think he said it just like that, but you know, that's, that's his voice. And so, so Vishnu said, all right, and uh, agreed to join us. And so a few days ago, uh, had an opportunity to record the three of us and uh, the following conversation is what came of it. Uh, as always, um, 
you know, this is a, a, a dual, a dual podcast, you know, a dual podcast project. And so you can find snippets of this conversation broken down into smaller segments and Andre's podcast ideas by Andre. So do recommend checking it out there. Uh, this is the full conversation here. Uh, after this, uh, Dre and I will probably have one or maybe two more conversations about religion. And then we already know what we're going to talk about next. Uh, and that is uh, manhood. I, I, I succeeded. It happened. I, I made it happen, you guys. Uh, I managed to convince Andre that we should tackle, you know, manhood and, and uh, masculinity and, and specifically toxic masculinity and the impact it's had on the world and, you know, how we can maybe reconceive of the way in which you know, we men think of ourselves and project ourselves into the world and the kind of impact that we have on the world. So uh, I'm excited to, you know, dive into that conversation with Andre too. But first things first, religion. And uh, first things absolutely first, before we get to this episode, as you know, I like to take an opportunity to do a little bit of a check-in, a chance to um, sort of share with folks what's going on with me and You know, the idea being that we want to normalize conversations about mental health and uh, inner struggle, and we want to have an opportunity to help folks feel as comfortable as possible, you know, sharing themselves, right? Bringing these conversations to the surface and bringing them to the light. Uh, By the way, got a couple of other kind of things cooking for Sunshine, not just these conversations with Dre, but We've got an interview that I think is likely to happen this weekend with uh, someone, which looks like it's going to be good. And a couple of others that are uh, looking to find some time to schedule as well. So lots cooking with sunshine. You know, for those who've been listening, I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, we're going to keep on keeping on. Any case, uh, what's going on with me? If I sound funny right now, it's because I'm recording this straight from the fucking dentist. <laughs> Like, oh God, the, the, the saga continues, man. I, you know, I, it's like, it's just, I, I just, I don't like it. I hate it. I I don't like it. My, right now my cheek is numb. Uh, you know, I I can kind of feel my, you know, draw a little bit. They essentially did today to me on the left side what they had done to me last week on the right side. So now at least I'm done with that deep gum cleaning process. Uh, what's next on the agenda is uh, I've got to go get some fillings in a couple of weeks. And then a few weeks after that, I have another kind of cleaning thing going on. Um, and then a couple of weeks after that, they're going to put the false tooth in. And, uh, and then, yeah, hopefully after that, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be trucking along like a normal human being with teeth. You know, going into the dentist every few months for a cleaning and hopefully not dealing with any cavities anymore or, you know, any, uh, any, you know, significant, uh, awful deep gum cleaning. But, uh, I guess we'll, I guess we'll see what happens. And today was kind of interesting because unlike last time, you know, where I didn't know what to expect and had to kind of wind my way through the anxiety as, uh, as the thing went on this time, I did know what to expect. You know, I knew exactly pretty much what to expect, which in some ways made it easier. And in some ways made it harder, which makes a lot, makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, on one hand, it's like when you see the path in front of you, you at least know what your next steps are. On the other hand, if they're hard, <laughs> then, 
you know, you know what the next steps are. Hands down, the toughest part of the whole thing is just having a syringe in your mouth, you know, for the for the more intense anesthetics, you know, the anesthesia, you know, to the little shot that that they have to give, you know, sort of along your gum there to numb the side of your mouth. And uh, that's just that's just a really uncomfortable that's just a really uncomfortable feeling. I mean, just the whole thing of having a, a, a syringe in your mouth. I mean, you kind of watch it go in and it's like, fuck, you're going to put that in my mouth. <laughs> like, first of all, in order to make it extra steady, they've got like the two like finger hole things on the side there, you know, so it looks like a syringe from like the 1920s. You know what I mean? Like it kind of looks like it belongs in a museum. And I think that's because they need it to be as steady as possible because that thing slips out of your hand. And next thing you know, you've put a shot in the tongue or somewhere where you really don't want it. And I can't imagine a numb tongue is a great idea. You know, it's not a great thing to want to have in your mouth there. So that's the hardest part. After that, it's really just dealing with the first, the sonic thing, which creates the high pitched noise in your mouth and your brain. And then the scraper, which is just a scraper. It kind of gets me thinking, you know, it's like, isn't there, wasn't there like, isn't there, isn't there, isn't there like some invention that science could come up with where when you're a kid and you get your adult teeth in, that they just coat it with something that protects it forever? You know what I mean? Like, isn't there something out there that could do that where you just coat your teeth and then it's like, you know, they have Rain-X. You know what Rain-X is? It's like that liquid stuff that you put on your windshield and then when it rains, you don't really need your wipers because, you know, because the rain just goes off of it. You know what I mean? You can't do that for teeth. Yet there isn't something that there isn't like something that someone can invent to just do that for teeth. I feel like that would save a lot of money. I feel like it would also put dentists out of work. So maybe that's why they don't do it. But I do feel like I do feel like that would be the healthy way to go, you know, to have something like that. But anyway, uh, I, I've got a ton of gratitude for the actual people who are working on my teeth, the dental hygienist named Sienna, who's just a, you know, a gem of a human who just manages, you know, me. I mean, like I said, I was really straightforward in terms of, look, I've got some anxiety about being here and, you know, it's just not easy and not, not a judgmental reaction in her body. No, no judgmental reaction at all. If anything, the impression I got was that they found my anxiety to be kind of endearing. You know, which is just a, a really comforting thing of like knowing that I can in that space sort of express myself and how I'm how I'm feeling at that moment, making little kind of unhappy noises when the syringe is in my mouth, not going overboard, but a couple unhappy noises. Like if it has to come up, just let it come up. I didn't like let any tears drop out this time. Like the last time, like tears were coming out in the end, I kind of had to like cry a little bit, you know, when it was all said and done. Uh, so that didn't happen this time. I did have a one though, a fucking one. Uh, this might be the first time you're listening to this. And if you are um, in past episodes, we've talked about kind of how I keep track of suicidal thoughts and ideations. And I keep track on it on a scale of zero to five. You know, I've explained it in past episodes, so I don't want to take up too much time doing that. But suffice it to say a one is like a very brief sort of thought of oh, I'm just going to go home and kill myself. <laughs> was, oh. Yeah. I hadn't had a one in a while. I haven't had one in a while. And I had one, I had one sitting there before. 
you know, so I was sitting in the, in the dentist and then just sort of popped up in my brain, you know, like, you know, she's doing the scraper thing and I'm just like, I'm just going to go home and kill myself. <laughs> it's just that thought in my, thought in my head, you know, it's just like, oh, okay. Whoa. Okay. Uh, that was a one. Okay. Deep breaths, deep breaths, <laughs> deep breaths. You're good. It's going to be fine. You're going to come out of it. You're not going to have a one again for the rest of the day. You know, there's a number of stressful things going on, not just the dentist. And, uh, you know, just deep breaths, you're, you're going to be okay, you know, and so that's sort of what I did to, you know, get through that, to get through that. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, I can, I can hate Frank. Frank, the depressive voice in my brain, man, he's, he's always at the party. You know, I got the door open for him. Chips are gone. Dip is gone, right? Nobody else is here. It's, you can go, Frank. You can you can leave now, you know, but he, he likes to hang around. He likes to hang around. Every now and then he'll just let me know he's still here. Yep, I see you. You're still here, man. I appreciate the thought, but you know what? Like, I got it. So rewarded myself afterwards. I, I didn't think there was going to be a Jamba Juice type place open. Usually I'd associate that with like breakfast and lunch type, you know, brunch type stuff. And I always kind of just assumed that Jamba Juice closed around three. Uh, but afterwards I just checked, you know, I put like Jamba juice and whatever. And it turned out the one near me was actually open. So went over there and treated myself to a, to a fruit, you know, to a peanut butter, uh, smoothie to kind of like, just make myself feel better a little bit. And then, uh, came home and, you know, relaxed a little bit and now taking some time to record and finish putting this episode together before I send it on to Eric. We can put it up on Spotify and keep sort of marching along. So that kind of uh, self-reward after going through a difficult thing is, is, a, is a good idea. It's never a bad idea to take a moment and just celebrate yourself. And, and you know, you made it. You deserve this uh, fruit smoothie. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so the dental saga continues, but I think I've made it through the hardest parts now. You know, the surgery, check, initial cleaning, check, deep gum cleaning, both sides, check and check. Uh, I think the pieces after this are going to be a heck of a lot easier. You know, the new tooth being put in is just a snap in place thing. I don't expect too much challenge with that. Uh, Maybe a little bit of pain, but it'll be fine. And uh, then the cleanings, you know, are uncomfortable, but... I can manage it. And honestly, you know, to not have that, to sort of alleviate that anxiety of knowing that here's the thing that I just have to deal with and just have to do it and to have it on the calendar and to have found a place where I trust the hygienist and trust the doctor. And, you know, they're totally non-judgmental of me and the shit I have to deal with in order to be there. You know, I, I, um, it's, uh, I can't say it's nice, but I'm definitely grateful and it does feel better. You know, it does feel better to just know that my mouth isn't going to kill me. (laughs) Uh, At least not via the teeth. You know, I might say something at some point that kills me, but not, 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 not the teeth, not the teeth. So, so yeah, uh, besides that, I got my new tattoos kicking trying to think, did I record an episode since I got the tattoos? I know last episode I said I was going to get tattoos, but no, I don't think I did. I think I got the tattoos and this is the first episode that I'm putting up since getting. 
So I got two new tattoos. One is a Black Lives Matter tattoo on my left wrist. It's right beneath that I've got uh, a treble clef on my left list, my left wrist pulse point. And then the words Black Lives Matter right underneath that. And then underneath that is a, a kind of spiritual cardinal bird that I got for, for my dad. The Black Lives Matter tattoo came out way cooler than I was expecting, man. I, when I first kind of envisioned it, I, I thought it would be smaller. And uh, no, it's, it's prominent. It's the first words I've got in terms of tattoo. All my other tattoos are images of a thing. First words I got, and I can't think of a better combination of words to have for my first words. I mean, we talked about on this podcast before, you know, certainly Andre and I have done a deep dive into racism. If you remember, you know, from those episodes, Andre and I had had a whole long conversation about his experience with anxiety and various types of shit that he's gone through. And in that initial conversation that he and I had, not once did growing up African-American, you know, come up in terms of this is a thing that he dealt with that might have contributed to his anxiety. And uh, I didn't bring it up, you know, and there was an opportunity where I could have and I just didn't. And after that, after recording that and putting it up, you know, I was walking around really proud of the fact that it never came up. You know, like I'm, uh, like I said before, I felt like I was living in a, a post-racial bubble, you know, and then George Floyd is killed and immediately it became sort of painfully and shamefully obvious that there's no such thing as a post-racial bubble and that, in fact, I was uh, a part of the problem, not a part of the solution, despite the fact that you know, one of my absolute best friends, my oldest friend, is uh, is a black man. You know, I I, uh, I I just didn't have it in my mind. You know, yeah, quite a bit of shame. So now I've got this tattoo on my on my wrist that uh, is there to remind me to never do that again, right? And also there to make it really really clear to everybody who sees me where I stand on the matter. You're walking around a white dude. And they're going to see that in my wrist and, and know the scoop. So, yeah, nice prominent sized uh, tattoo right there. And the other one I got is a QR code right between my shoulder blades and my upper back. Nice prominent sized QR code. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's actually going to work. I did design a website and uh, created a QR code for that website. So in theory, if you put your phone on the QR code, then it will take you to a website that I designed. And I fucking love that idea. Just uh, just kind of felt like a lifetime of joy to me of, you know, being able to switch up the website and depending on the mood, have different, you know, kind of messages there, depending on just how I felt, you know, in that particular moment. I really like that idea of just making a dynamic message through there. Honestly, if it never works, I don't really care either because, because it immediately becomes sort of a commentary of a dystopian future, you know? <laughs> That's like, I love that. I love the thought that like this tattoo was either a lifetime of joy, dynamic, ever-changing website with different messages based off of how I'm feeling in a moment or a commentary of a dystopian future where humans are, you know, we have our names taken away from us and are just known for the barcodes for our barcode. (laughs) So as of yet, I haven't been able to like, you know, put a phone on it and have it pick up. I, maybe because it's healing. Maybe it just won't work. You know, maybe I'm too tan right now. 
because uh, I've been swimming a lot. And so, you know, I'm just kind of extra tan right now. And so maybe there isn't enough contrast. Uh, I don't really, I don't fucking care. It looks cool. So uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. But yeah, that's the other tattoo I got. So both are in the itchy stage now. Solid, solid itchy stage. You know, so I'm keeping them, keeping them covered in, uh, in the aquifer, which is what you're supposed to do. And, uh, and they're kind of peeling away there, which is what they're supposed to do. And, uh, about a week and a half or so they'll be, they'll be fine. So, uh, so that's, that's what's going on there. Uh, in the meantime, it is September 21st today in the evening, and we are inching ever closer to October 1st when I was taking myself off of the dating hiatus and jumping back into my search for love. So that's the other piece that I find myself thinking about a lot right now and kind of, you know, sort of continuing to think about what it is that I want, what it is that I'm looking for. And, you know, you think about like personality traits of somebody that you want to partner with and, you know, how you want to feel and how you want to be able to make them feel and all these different pieces that sort of come together in these interesting ways. And on one hand, it's like, you know, I've got an idea in terms of what I'm looking for. But on the other hand, it's not really all that specific. You know, it's not really all that specific. There isn't like, you know, a specific person or a personality trait that I'm looking for in a in a woman. You know, I, I certainly want my, you know, want the person I fall in love with to be kind and, and caring and giving and patient and, you know, romantic and all those all those things. But I think Mostly, I, I would like to feel found. You know what I mean? Like, and, I, and I, want, I want them to feel found. And when I say that, what I mean is, it's like, you know, searching for love is like a treasure hunt, right? I mean, you kind of know sort of where you're going and, you know, you, you kind of understand what X marks the spot's going to be, but... When you dig in, you, you're never fully sure, but then you hit, you know, the treasure and you open it up and it's like, oh, this is a treasure. You know, this is a treasure. My gosh. You know, that's, that's how I want to feel. And that's how I want to make someone feel. You know, I want to meet someone and connect with them and just feel like, where have you been? How are you available? I mean... My Lord, I mean, that's, that's how I want to feel. And, and I want to be with someone who feels the same about me, you know, where it's like, how, how am I so lucky to have met someone like you and to, you know, have an opportunity to be with someone like you, you know, that's, that's the, that's the way that I want to feel. So that's what I'm looking for. You know, I don't know. Is it asking too much? Oh God, I hope not. Yeah, I definitely hope not. I'm not fucking here for an A minus, man. I'm here for an A plus love. Like, let's get it. You know, let's get a let's get that A plus love going. Like, I've I've earned it. <laughs> God damn it, <laughs> I have I have fucking earned it, man. You know, I have definitely earned it. I think everyone deserves it. Like, everyone deserves love, but. uh I don't think everyone earns it necessarily. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people just take it for granted. They settle. They don't like, 
you know, they don't work hard for it. You know, they, they take, they take the person they connect with for granted, take advantage of them, all sorts of, all sorts of nasty business. But, uh, you know, when you put the hard work in and you work on yourself and you get yourself to a point where you really, you just made yourself a, a whole person, which is what I've been doing. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've earned it, you know? So we'll see. We'll see. You know, I'm a recruiter in my professional life, my headhunter. And uh, looking for love is, is just like headhunting, man. It's, it's a numbers game. You connect with uh, different people and most of the time it's a miss, but all you need is one, or at least for me, all I need is one. And there's some polyamorous people out there that might need two or three, you know, so God bless them. <laughs> go, go find their two or three, but me, I just need one. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of where it's at for me. So another 10 days of working on myself, of kind of looking around and saying, all right, what else, what else to, what else to do? You know, I've got more exercising I'm, I'm up to. That's just a, a life thing, but, you know, feeling in pretty good shape right now. And so continuing to push that, push that ball down the road. Uh, I got a couple small items in my apartment that I want to work on to kind of fix up here and there. So there's that getting my girls, uh, really going in the, in the school front. That's still kind of an ongoing challenge, you know, making sure that they're, that they're settled into whatever crazy routine this school year of 2020 to 2021 is going to bring. And yeah, it's, it's just going to be crazy all year. There's no question really settling into that. So that's kind of, that's kind of where it is. So lots of good episodes coming up. You know, I really hope you enjoy this one. Um, don't worry if you don't understand it because I don't either. <laughs> and don't worry. We're going to get back to, uh, talking about this episode, the beginning of next episode with Andre. I'll make sure to say, okay, can we just go over like what the fuck we were talking about with the fish new? Because I don't, I thought I got it then, but I don't get it now. So yeah, if you uh, listen to this episode and you get it, it'd be nice to hear from you. <laughs> you can email me and explain it in a sentence or two, three sentences at most. You know, if you have a fucking theology and you can't explain it in three sentences at most, then it's got no street value. So if you can explain this theology in, in three second in three three sentences or less. That'd be uh, that'd be real helpful. Feel free to go ahead and email me at uh, josh at periveritas.com. And uh, I'd appreciate hearing from you. And if you want to just email me anyway about anything, feel free to do that. I'll make sure to talk about it on the show. See if we can't, you know, get you up on the episode. In any case, I do hope you're well. I hope you're hanging in. This is a pretty scary time in our country. Lots of weird, scary things going on. Got a lot of uh, thoughts about that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away since the last episode and this episode. It's pretty scary business, certainly raises the stakes for this upcoming election. And uh, to say the least, it is certainly incredibly frightening that our president is making it clear that he thinks the only way that he could possibly lose this election is if the election is rigged. And that is a really, really scary rhetoric because of what it leads to and where it ends up. So it does feel like our country is kind of on a war footing right now, which is uh, completely, completely terrifying. 
So there's also that, you know, plenty to be anxious about. Look, we got to got to keep going, right? Got to keep kind of taking things one step at a time. Got to keep living life. Got to keep loving our loved ones. Got to keep finding our ways towards celebration, finding ways to be happy and finding ways to be healthy and whole. And I certainly hope you are doing that. As always, thanks for joining. As always, like and subscribe. Please feel free to share this with as many of your friends and cohorts and uh, fellow countrymen as possible. And I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation. What's kind of weird about this, you know, is that this is a podcast that is, you know, both, you know, Andre's podcast so my and my podcast too. So how we, you know, navigate this, hopefully this will just kind of turn into a conversation at some point real quick. Um, but, uh, but it's great to have you on the line here, Vishnu, man. Like, it's funny because I, I, last time we talked, it's probably 10 years ago at this point, if not more. And that was the first time we ever talked. And prior to that, you know, you just, I, I wasn't sure if you were real. I thought maybe you were like a figment of Andre's imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vishnu's like my relative that I'm like super proud of. And I'm like, yeah, my cousin Vishnu this and my cousin Vishnu that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But both of us had heard so much about each other up till that point, you know, that it's, uh, um, you know, pretty fucking awesome. Man. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so my understanding is, and this is what Dre said, that you kind of heard a couple of our conversations and wanted to jump into the talk, right? That's sort of the deal? No, that was, uh, this kind of was an offshoot of a conversation that Andre and I were having. And uh, I was trying to explain the topic to him, and he said this would be a great topic to explain to people in general and, uh, and have a kind of a bigger conversation around it. It's really more of a philosophical thing than anything else, but... It has parameters that overlap in physics and they overlap into spirituality as well. Because for a long time, you know, it seems like human beings have been looking for um, sort of like an explanation to everything. Like, why are we here? Where are we going? You know, what is all of this stuff? And ways of quantifying it and also qualifying it. And oftentimes the two don't actually um, support each other because the qualitative uh, assessments of things are really just personal and subjective. Yep. Whereas the uh, the quantitative is what all science is built out of. And science has had a real problem trying to reconcile any of the stuff that comes out of the more creative, personal, intuitive explanations of things. But at some point, the acknowledgement is that if we finally do have a theory of the universe and what we're in and, how, and what existence is, it should really encompass as much of human um, of the human thought process as we possibly can that means covering everything in terms of imagination as well as hard science. You know, there should be some mathematical basis of it that doesn't violate this belief system. Yeah. And um, I remember years ago when I actually, when I first went to undergrad, Carl Sagan was still around. And I got to take a class with this guy. And, um, you got to take a class with Carl Sagan? Yeah. And it was Good like, a, yeah, crazy. it was astrogeology class. And, like, not a very interesting topic, but he was a fascinating person. I remember uh, I saw him in the stacks one day, and I was at, looking for a book, and he knew exactly where to get it, and it was in another library. So either he had just recently looked at that book, or at some point had just looked at it and committed it to memory. But, um, yeah, he was actually one of the main founders of um, 
the church of like it, it's not Scientology, but it was like a science church. Yeah. The exact name was like the Church of Science. I would drive past it, you know, or go past it on the bus and say, "What the heck is that?" And everybody would tell me, "That's where all the physics people go." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. that's their spirituality there. I'm like, what is there a cyclotron to meet there or something? <laughs> <laughs> what are they what are they talking about? But it had to be this. It had to be yeah. non-locality. Yeah. Um, because the idea of the theories around loca- uh, non-locality dean all the way back to nineteen twenty nine. Yeah. To uh, to the Broy. And then yeah. um, David Bohm went and, you know, kind of resuscitated it and gave it some mathematic life. And he was ostracized and essentially extricated from the uh, from the academic community. Because the one thing about science is that you can't really come through in the scientific community and do something super revolutionary. It's like the art world. Like yeah. if you come through and you do something super revolutionary, everyone's going to be like, wait, no, that's not the way it's done. People yeah. will line up to tell you that that's not a procedure. So um, you have to get past all these different naysayers and if you get enough of them it's like a like a like a byzantine generals problem you know if you get enough of mm-hmm. them you get 51 percent or more saying that it looks good then then you yeah, know you go. accept it yeah that's particularly true of theoretical physics yeah uh, no i was gonna say before we before we like just jump like head first into all this stuff and i wonder i was wondering if both of you would be cool if we take just one moment and like pull back a second and do two quick things first. Um, one is that when Andre and I first started this conversation, we took a moment to take a step back and talk a little bit about kind of our faith journey and what led us to this point, just so for listeners sake, they can understand kind of who we are and what our background is and everything else. And so I'd love to actually hear that from you. And then speaking of what you were just talking about, I mean, I don't know if you've read Thomas Kuhn, but you're fucking talking about Thomas Kuhn. Um, this dude, uh, who was, uh, um, a philosopher of science and wrote this whole book about paradigms and how paradigms work in science. And, uh, the basic kind of understanding that he was trying to put in there is that we think of science as a kind of slow progress towards the truth. Like if we were to pull back and look at the narrative arc of science, what right. we see is this slope up closer and closer to truth as time goes on. But in all actuality, it looks a lot more like the stock market. You know what I mean? There are times when we're closer to truth, times when we're further away from truth. And and um, and how close we are, how far away we are from truth really has more to do with just the politics of the thing. Right. Do people believe in this kind of thing or that kind of thing? And and what mm-hmm. happens is, is that there's a great discovery in science that then has a uh, causes a paradigm shift in terms of how people think of things. And that completely readjusts. Um, our approach to stuff. So you look at like science before the invention of the microscope and science after the invention of the microscope, right? Science before the invention of um, all the different ways to kind of look at shit and then science after the, and it just all shifts. So uh, would you mind like first thing, just walk us through a couple of minutes in terms of your spiritual journey and then let's maybe talk Thomas Kuhn and then let's dive into this uh, quantum mechanics stuff. Uh, with respect that? to my spiritual journey, I, a lot of influence from an early age from different uh, spiritual um, diasporas, as well as ethnic diasporas. Since like uh, I don't know how many races I've got in me, but it's you know it's more than two, um, and it seems like each contributed their own belief system in some way or the other um, yeah. in terms of spirituality. Certainly, Christianity was there, like you know, right from the start. Um, 
specifically the Anglican faith, because that's big in Trinidad. Um, and then I have Hinduism that makes its way in there, you know, around the same time. And, uh, you know, also my family was very good at curating uh, our own culture all the way back to Africa. So, you know, there was a lot of influence that came from um, the Shango religion, which uh, one version of the Shango religion has kind of been bastardized and turned into like Vodan and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a much older religion that goes back to Africa and it's an anthropomorphic one, but it has, like all these religions, they have these axioms that seem to be, of you know, so, sort of a Venn diagram between, between these different beliefs. And they all sort of like serve the same purpose to explain, you know, what is the truth of existence? Um, it's a search for origin and also destination of the individual. And so all of those came into play. Um, the various versions of Christianity as, uh, as time went on, uh, that I explored primarily through my mother for a while. She was a Jehovah's witness. Um, I went to Catholic school and I saw they operated there. Um, you know, so I've had, I've explored a, a variety of different Asian and Judeo Christian forms of religion. But, uh, what kind of really took hold for me was, math um and you know in terms of a search for an answer math is basically about that i mean you know you're always just trying to come up with an answer a solution to a problem and it's very neat and it's very black and white and when you're dealing with a lot of gray areas in your life um it's comforting to find solace in that black and white of mathematics and then from mathematics interpretation of mathematics and applying mathematics to the real world and you know why is a why do these series occur in nature? Why is Fibonacci series constantly occurring? You know the golden ratios in flowers, and you know why are these patterns constantly occurring? Like they have applications. Numbers have applications in the real world. And then um, beyond that, then using these numbers and formulas to explain certain phenomena, both on the macroscopic level and on the subatomic level. Is uh, has been as good as any other form of of spirituality as I've experienced. But on the other side, uh, you know, as much as I've had uh, a lot of deep immersion into the sciences, I've never been able to extricate myself from my own identity, which is as an artist. So I've always had an artistic interpretation of everything, even visual representations of mathematics. I'm not an analytic mathematician; I'm a visual mathematician, and uh, and with the visual stuff. Um, there's a level of interpretation that's spiritual. Um, just how you experience things that you see and how you interpret things that you see. And uh, sort of like the the symbolic interpretation of the world. So symbolism has been a big part of it. And I would say that in terms of spirituality, that's where my spirituality is right now. It's in terms of symbolic representations of the world around us. Be they uh, psychological symboli- uh, symbolism or... Um, you know, quantifiable symbolism in the form of functions. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, and really not a whole lot more beyond that. So I'm coming from a completely other end than than Andre is. Although we've had, you know, in our early days, we've had sort of the same journey. We've had the same exploration through spirituality. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, cousins, right? Same family background, same heritage, same all that stuff but sort of two different takes on the same thing. Uh, exactly. 
How does, just out of curiosity, um, just to kind of put it on the street, right? I mean, I, I think a lot about theologies and their street value and how they kind of translate to an everyday. So, uh, you know, obviously I, I know a thing or two about your history as a martial artist. Um, and I know a little bit about your other work as an artist in the visual arts, films and things like that. I'm curious in terms of just the everyday applicable, you know, ap the application of, of your particular approach to your understanding of the world. How does it manifest? Um, it manifests in different ways, um, but I observe the world basically through an artist framework, and that applies to sciences. You know, because at some point in human history, being an artist, whether that was the word that was used or not, it meant something a lot more than what it means sure. today. Um, yeah. It's very encompassing of all the things that human beings do. It's the earliest thing that we know that we did as humans. And everything that we do, whether it's in technology or anything like that, requires the level of creativity that almost revolutionizes industries and gets a lot of pushback from people around who maybe aren't as forward-thinking. So um, I try to maintain a, sort of like a healthy artistic approach to things where if you were to segment a person into three different components, like a mind, body, and a spirit, um, you know, as you said, the martial arts would comprise the body, the um, obviously the engineering and, and sciences would combine, would comprise the mind. And then art has been my spirit, has been my soul all the way through. And it is, it is bigger than the other two. It is a driving force. And it was there before the other two, and it will be there after. So that's my, that's my approach to it. Okay, I think I, I think I get that. Dre, am I missing any questions here? Anything else we should drill down with Vishnu before we dive into the science? <laughs> no, I, th I think that's it. But the, like, uh, just to mention one thing for anybody who's like listening to this first rather than the other stuff first, uh, this kind of came up because Josh and I were fumbling around with the idea of. Uh, basically almost like religion and science at some point should be converge and be one thing. Um, but since we're not scientists, scientific background, we're really fumbling around with wh what that would look at, look like. And right. more than saying that it's just important that that happens rather than saying what that structure is. Uh, and then I was having a conversation with uh, Vishnu about something completely different. And he started telling me about this uh, non-locality effect in quantum physics and the origins of that and the implications of that. And a lot of that description was jiving with what the goals of uh, our religion, quote unquote, was made for good and for the continuation of the species. So I was like, yeah, I'm never going to be able to explain this as well as Vishnu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's a lot there that people need to hear and, he, and you and I actually need to hear. All right. Per perfect. Perfect. Well, I mean, my mindset is I, I, I studied a little bit of philosophy in college and, and my gateway to kind of understanding even some of the more esoteric sciences has always been to figure out how to connect some of those really difficult kind of themes and concepts, you know, to try to sort of understand them through the mindset of philosophy and theology. And, uh, and I was pretty heavily impacted by reading the writings of Thomas Kuhn, who's one of the more uh, famous philosophers of science. And uh, last name spelled K-U-H-N, I think. There's an H in there somewhere. K-H-U-N. I think K-U-H-N. Yeah, 
K-U-H-N, right? Yeah. 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 And, and his, his big thing, and a lot of scholars of Thomas Kuhn will come around and say, no, nah, you've got this all wrong, Josh. Like, don't fucking say it like this. But this is kind of how I took it was, you know, this, this real understanding that we think about science as a pursuit of truth, but it doesn't always work that way. But what essentially happens is, is you have these sort of these paradigms that inform everything in terms of how people think about themselves, the way we conceptualize the world, the way we conceptualize the universe and how we sit in it. You know, it wasn't that long ago that people believed that the earth was the center of the universe, right? And think about like what that means in terms of identity and how, and how, how a person then walks around their life understanding that, that, the, that they are in fact the center of the universe. You know, we live at a time right now, as crazy as it seems, where we understand that as a human race, we are as advanced as we have ever been throughout all of human history. You know, our ability to understand science, our technology is as, is as advanced as it's ever been. And we kind of walk around as if that's always the case. But there were entire generations of people who lived in the shadow of other generations of people who, who existed before them who clearly were more advanced than they were. Do you know what I mean? And think about like what that would have been like for a human being who is uh, living in the shadow of like the destroyed Roman empire that could build things that they and their societies couldn't even conceive of how to build it. Right. So it, all these things kind of have an impact in terms of identity. And then what happens is, is that there are these paradigm shifts, these massive shifts in just the basic ways that people think of themselves that then um, change, you know, sort of everything in terms of how we conceptualize the universe and our position in it. And I personally think that humanity's discovery of quantum mechanics and our understanding of it is going to have a massive impact on human identity once it enters the most basic understand, like the most basic aspect of how people think of themselves. Does that make sense? Like, you know, so up until now, we've always believed that like, for me, I can say I am the only Josh Burroughs in existence. I'm defined by the fact that no other being can occupy my space and time at the same space and time that I'm there. Right. But it turns out that actually that's not true. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not true at all. You know what I mean? And what does it mean all of a sudden when, you know, well, I, that's actually what we're going to discuss whether or not that is or isn't true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because, uh, because uh, non-locality would state that many worlds is not possible. Okay. All right, let's go. Let's go. All right, so uh, <laughs> paradigm shift and understanding of, of human uh, human identity, paradigm shift of all this stuff. What's non-locality, man? Talk me through it. Well, I mean, it all goes back to the double-slit experiment. Like, how can we explain why light can behave as both a particle and a, as a wave? And, right. uh, and how the pattern actually changes when you try to observe the phenomena. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that the observer affects the observed has been known for a while. Yeah. But the reasons why have not been well understood. And the math defining it has only been generally described as a probability distribution function. That's the uh, Copenhagen model. Yeah. But what De Bruyne and Bohm, David Bohm, um, tried to really uh, show was that there was another way to look at the perspective of how quantum mechanics works, that there is essentially another hidden function or a hidden wave, what they call the pilot wave, that um, that we're not seeing. And that if such a wave exists, 
and it could be a wave that's running sort of like perpendicular or running in another dimensional space or diagonal to um, the way the light particles, the photons are moving, that it can have an impact on whether or not the uh, photonic pattern scatters, you know, or if it gives you a straight beam. And, uh, and so later when we had the computing power to be able to simulate this effect, it was found that, yeah, this is a totally viable version of the unit of explaining what's going on at a quantum level. I don't know that that explanation also explains some of the weird quantum phenomena like entanglement or spooky action in the distance, yeah. which is when you have two particles and maybe a single particle that gets separated. You can put any amount of space you'd like in between them, and if you change the direction or the spin or the charge on one, the other one changes instantaneously, fast in the speed of light, which violates relativity. And it didn't make any sense to Einstein. He thought there was something wrong, and he kind of didn't like any of the explanations. In fact, he didn't even want to go along with quantum mechanics at any level. Um, ultimately, he got proven wrong there, but no one was able to come up with a way of really sort of integrating relativity with what's going on with, uh, with these particles acting strangely at the subatomic level. Then the explanation of non-locality came along that said that basically the reason why this, these two particles can affect each other faster than the spe speed of light is because they're one. And actually our description of the observer and the observed is wrong because the observer is the observed and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like looking at yin and yang. And you're like, oh yeah, yin defines yang, yang defines yin. And if you didn't have one, you wouldn't have the other by definition. But when you look at them both from far away, you'll say it's both yin and yang. It's one thing. And that, that is the philosophical interpretation of it, which actually goes back to a lot of Asian cultures. It's seen in Buddhism. Um, Krishnamurti talked about it. And actually, that's how, how uh, David Bohm became acquainted with, uh, with Murti. But he was actually pulling this ideology for much older um, Hindu texts. I had always believed that they were one and the same thing. And so this idea that there's things that are separate uh, at the subatomic level and are sort of, sort of unique units that don't have effect on other units does not seem to be true. And in subsequent experiments, it's been shown that, you know, particles actually not only are part of systems, you know, that uh, reality essentially is formed by particles that realize that there are other particles in their space and have a probability of interacting with them, and then do. And then from that interaction, actually define their place in space. Like their place is much well, much better defined when they have those interactions. And the more of those interactions that you have, the more of those connections that are formed up, the, the, the stronger reality gets built up. This is how, how matter itself gets built up. And then the question is whether or not you can extend any of this this activity going on in the quantum universe to anything that's happening on, at the macroscopic level that's happening with people. And philosophically, you actually, it seems like you can, that it's basically the idea that, you know, we are all essentially connected and that uh, there's a fatalist component to it where it's like, yes, not only are we connected, but our place is really defined, well-defined for us. And yeah, there's some variation to where places could be. There are reconfigurations of, of the entire network, but the network is well-formed. It's well-connected. 
And the idea that you're somehow disconnected from the, you know, the homeless person on the street or somebody else who looks nothing like you is completely bogus, that you are connected and there is an impact. And the butterfly effect is very real in that sense. It's, and it seems to be, it seems to be entirely supported by non-locality. Non-locality, not, not only as, as a, as a physics property of subatomic particles, but as a, a philosophical, you know, as, as a philosophical precept for, for the way we need to view ourselves and view others, that there is no other, you know, because the other is essentially yourself. Although there are differences and we have different places, the, the observer is the observed. We're actually part of the same single structure. Yeah, that's, I mean, there, there's so much uh, Hinduism there, it's sort of unbelievable, right? I mean, to, to really, right? I mean, that's like ultimately what enlightenment is, is that realization, right? That right. you are one and one right. and all. It's all part of the same Godhead and everything else. Um, just to back up, because my brain is exploding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my my layman's understanding of quantum physics, you know, sort of says, all right, look, I mean, basically, we're, we're looking at very, very small things, right? We understood that, um, you know, the human body is made up of cells, and then you get smaller, and, and the cells are made up of atoms, then you get even smaller, and the atoms are made up of quarks. And the problem is, is that while atoms behave very similarly to cells, and cells seem to behave very similarly to bodies, the quarks don't behave similarly to atoms. That's because they're below the Planck length. So when you get to a certain size, a certain scale, the reason why Moore's law has a limit is because when you get down to the size of an electron, you know, the barrier in between, like the way most solid state uh, and, and basically chip technology works today is by having semiconductors. You know, sometimes they conduct, sometimes they don't. Well, when you get small enough and the barriers between different units of a semiconductor, um, you know, when it's when it's below the Planck length, now the electrons can jump. They can be anywhere. You got Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in play. And um, so you don't actually know. I mean, the uncertainty principle is basically says you don't actually know the specific place that the particle would be um, at any given time. You may have a probability of what it's going to be. But if you don't know the pilot wave, if you wanted to bring back in non-locality, if you don't know the pilot wave, you wouldn't know exactly where that electron would be. But if you right. did know the pilot wave, if you did know that there was another there was another function exerting force on those uh, particles, then you would have a much better prediction model. And um, right. it's kind of similar to uh, the way you think about like uh, building Markov chains and building uh, networks of things happening, like cause and effect. Like one thing leads to another, leads to another. But if you're missing anything in the causality chain, you really can't map it all the way through. Um, and that's that's the whole idea of uh, of finding the pilot wave. Like you know, that is sort of like if uh, if this area of physics had a missing link, that would be it. Like describing mm-hmm. the pilot wave. Um, right. And right. So. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your finish your finish your point there. No, I mean that's that's the the one takeaway of this is that you can't always define that because we're at a pie length, and un- unfortunately, our ability to really manipulate things at that level and even even see things at that level, like for example, no one's seen an electron. We know what it does. We use it every day, but right. no one's seen it. Right. Right. So, right. What's that saying? Uh, it's like how how do you know they're there? And then the scientist said, if you could spray it, it's there. <laughs> right. You can see its effect. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's it's like a matter of time kind of thing. It was like, you know, the ancients would have said, you know, how do you know air is there? Because you, know, <laughs> you breathe it. You're breathing yeah. it. So it's yeah. somehow it's having an effect. You can't smell it or taste it or whatever, but it's there. Otherwise, right. I mean, it and, Yeah, and, and most of this stuff re- – in terms of our technology, we're either smashing things together at that right. level to take a big picture with some massive piece of engineering, you know, with a very sensitive chip that can see the energy dispersion, you know, in some wavelength, uh, or you're uh, you're trying to use subatomic particles to divide other subatomic particles in some more concentrated way. Like right now, we can manipulate atoms to build molecular computers, but below that, like manipulating subatomic particles, we can't even see them. No. Yeah. Well, we can yeah. we can see their effect. And so we have, gets, found, we have found the Higgs boson. Like a couple of years ago they saw it. They found it. So yeah, they well, you've, it. you've you've seen the phenomena of it, yeah. you know. You've seen the wave. Yeah. You know? uh, here's the here's the wave that that creates mass. Um, yeah. That that stuff but, is uh, that's we still don't have a graviton. That's what you need. The graviton would solve would would finish the theory of uh of a unified universe, you know, of right. all the forces. Kind of know where right. gravity broke off at like 10 to minus 46, but don't really know what it was doing. We don't really know what sort of like the early particles that describe gravity was. Um, it's a big right. hole, like what happens when a black hole goes down to a point of singularity. Well, it's a, obviously a quantum point, but what's going on there? What particle represents it? You know, um, where does the inflation come from? Right. So if we don't understand gravity, which is essentially creating and forming space and curving space at that subatomic level, we don't have a complete theory there. Right. 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 Probably it, those particles have, if they, if we do find them, probably have non-locality in play. Because if you think about it, it all started from a single origin, like you know, some kind of infinite thing. density in some kind of tiny space. So essentially, it was one unit at some point. It's expanding out. It's still one unit. It's yeah, just the, unit. the illusion of the separations are really just an illusion. There's so many illusions going on in the universe from a mathematical really standpoint, is. like needing only two dimensions of information to describe three. You know, it's <laughs> counterintuitive, but right. it's but it's there. Uh, technically, the the stuff that's on the surface area of the universe, if you were to think of the universe as a ball, which it isn't, but if you were to think about it like that, you'd say the surface area could describe everything inside of it. Just like a hologram. Right. All you need is a right. surface area. Right, right. To create that illusion. Right. So um, I, I think about this stuff all the time in terms of just how that then translates into the human experience, right? So what does it mean to have an imagination given that, you know, given that understanding? What does it mean to have an identity given that understanding? I, I remember, um, you know, kind of doing a deep dive into some of this stuff. As much as I could, by the way, which wasn't you know all that scholarly, but a little bit of a deep dive into some of this stuff a bunch of years ago. And one of the points that they made is that you know this might explain you know some really interesting mental illnesses, like for example schizophrenia, where um, where you have people who you know have a disease that may have put them in an uplifted place in other societies, right? You think about the great seers of Greece and things like that, who were often people who were mentally ill. And who are interacting with the world in a really different way. And maybe they're not crazy at all, but in fact, they're kind of seeing the world in the nonlinear way that it really exists. And so we're interpreting their behavior as crazy, but it's really not crazy at all. They've got the more um, truthful understanding of reality. It's just that when they express it to us, because we're living in this illusion, their expressions seem 
crazy, right? So there's that kind of extreme of it, yeah. Yeah, like I said, my mother's a mental health practitioner and she had a similar theory about it. Um, you know, what we know is the brain is just kind of like a thing that exists in a, in a box. Um, yeah. We get feet, we get information, we get electrical impulses from the, the framework that it's in, the body. And then the brain does all its interpretation inside. And some parts of the brain get lit up more than others, depending on how your neural networks are set up. Some people have, right. you know, extensive activity in the dopamine areas of the brain. Um, that kind of activity and the right temporal lobe tend to, you know, give you things like uh, what what's termed as hallucinations. Yeah. Um, whether or not that is a way of interpreting something that is there or, you know, or, or Maybe it's actually not even an interpretation. Maybe that is a level of reality that most aren't in touch with. Like, um, you know, we can only see a small bit of the visible light spectrum. You know, yeah. maybe we have a small area of, um, of understanding of reality in general, of, of, of how to congeal the sensory information in a way that gives us a truthful picture. I don't know. I mean, that, that's a very – because that gets into uh, more of a qualitative look at, at things. Um, which is very hard because you have to ask the question like the really hard question is what is consciousness? Right. And, and then what theory, what theory that we have that's available to us either mathematically or in terms of uh, theoretical physics accounts for that. Because right now where we are with, with everything in terms of um, neurology, we're trying to just kind of have a, a engineering like perspective on what the brain is and how it works Albeit at the at the smallest smallest levels that we can possibly see at the at the at the neuronal levels, you know, and trying to model that and seeing we can build AIs on the basis of the way neurons neurons spike. By the way, we don't have a really good mathematical framework for representing spikes either, um, but we'll try to model it and we'll try to model it with uh, with the you know in silicon or whatever, and uh, we can get a good approximation. And then there's this sort of a dumbing down of what a human is and, you know, your personality is just a gooey running on top of a brain. You know? like, <laughs> how would you know? How would you even that's, know that? That's the transhumanist way she, of looking at she, it. She, yeah. The transhumanist wants that. And what's transhumanist? What's transhumanist? It's a, it's another, it's another philosophy slash, I would say borderline religiosity perspective that has sort of been born in Silicon Valley and spread all over the net denizens who are consider themselves to be tech forward. It's the idea that you can eventually become a ghost in the shell. Like you can transfer your consciousness into the machine. Uh, okay. And, yeah. and at the same time, like, you know, so people who believe in that, they're like pro AIs. They're pro, they're not, they're not scared of uh, an AI God, you know, like you know, yeah. God created man. Man not, kill God not, and not then man kill AI God that kills man. They're not afraid of that at all. <laughs> yeah, they want it. <laughs> they want it. They crave it. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, and, and and you know you can you get into debates with with people about this stuff like when 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 Musk released his uh, his latest iteration of his of his BCI of his his yeah. brain computer interface. Uh, by the way, it's 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 pretty. His underlying theory of why he's doing it is nonsensical to me. Like it's the idea that that there is a a margin of humanity, there's a margin of a human in the loop that will save us from converging to a full AI state. I really don't know what that margin is. I don't know a formula for it. I don't know how you quantify it. I don't know what he's talking about. You know, yes, you want to make cyborgs. I get it, 
right? But don't tell us you're making cyborgs because that's the last line of defense against the AI god. Because sooner or later, the machine parts that have been swapped out in the person's brain, and you know it's going to be focused on the brain because that's what we're competing against machines with, computation. Um, The parts they're going to swap out, they're eventually going to realize that the organic parts – that the genetic algorithm somehow is just not efficient enough, you know? Uh, the only thing I can say about genetic algorithms is that they burn a lot less energy. Um, there's really no level, there's really no limiting factor on the level of energy the machine computation can do. Blockchains are perfect examples of that. Blockchains will suck as much energy as they possibly can, all right? Yeah. You know, if, if left to their own devices, you know, if Bitcoin went past 21 million coins, you know, you could expect a network to be playing a ridiculous hash game because that's 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 what they're running on their computers. They're running these mathematical functions that really heat up machines. And with there being no upper boundary on that, like you know, whatever the whatever the the problem is that the computer is working on, it's very greedy. It will keep consuming energy. So we can't we can't say that machines are more efficient in terms of their energy use. You right. can't say that yet. So there may be some biological efficiency that, uh, you know, we, I, I don't know that we've really quantified what that looks like, but biological systems may be more efficient at solving certain problems. I tell you one thing, it seems like biological systems are way more elegant. There's an elegance Absolutely. to the way the solution is solved. It takes a lot of time, but what is time? You know, yeah. for humans, we have no time. So we want to, we want to get the answer quick. We want to run the machine hard. We want to run it fast. But for biological systems, it can take its time. And, right. it, and it does seem – this is a little bit off on a, ta- on a tangent, but it does seem like, like biological systems are to some extent concerned with cons- conservation of energy. That conservation of energy is an important part of whatever the universe is evolving into being. We know the right. universe is subject to the second law of thermodynamics, that it's anthropic by nature. But, you know, it does seem that like biological systems at their best are very good at conserving that energy and recycling that energy and using that energy in a very efficient way. And it's not been clear to me that machines like necessarily have the same directives. Maybe someone has to program it, that into a machine. But that right. being said, you know, sort of like uh, recursing out of that, you know, what Elon is doing over there, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense because we haven't really quantified consciousness. Right. Until we have a way of looking at that, like there's been a couple different ways. There's been the mathematical phi function where like, oh, consciousness exists at every level. You know, it just depends on the density of the network. It exists at subatomic levels and it's just networks and you build them up and build them up. It's a very Buddhist way of looking at it. Yeah. And if you say, all right, well, is the universe consciousness? I mean, if it's highly connected and, uh, you know, uh, it's very vast, is it conscious? You know, what is kind of galaxy conscious? You know, I don't, you know. How do you how do you measure that? Um, yeah. And then there's the idea like um, you know we exist in a consciousness based universe that's many worlds, right? So if you have a infinite probability of different things that can exist because there's a multiverse, there must be at least one that exists that can support that can support consciousness a consciousness based universe, right? But that would actually be in conflict with non locality. How so? Because uh, Many worlds comes out of the idea that quantum wave function can be interpreted in many different ways, that there's many different versions of yourself in many different universes. Whereas non-locality says that there is a precise configuration. There is a precise configuration based on the pilot wave. 
and it doesn't leave room for the many worlds interpretation. There's a good, there's a show. It's not really good. It's called Devs, and it's about that. Mm-hmm. In Devs, they have a you know some kind of like you know souped up quantum computer that can simulate very high dimensional systems, and they decide to start modeling our world. And uh, it's holographic by nature, but they you know they increase the processing power, and it seems like it can actually not only simulate, but it is the world. It is exactly the world, and it starts predicting things. And it can go. You can run in the, in, in the past, and you can run in the future, and you know it's it's very accurate. But there's uh, this one. Um, I guess he's a young coder. Um, I'm actually not even sure if it's a he character, not even a non-binary character. But the character comes up with the solution uh, because he couldn't make, or he or she couldn't make many worlds work. So the character decided to use Du Bois Brahms' version with the pilot wave, and said that. Uh, I actually, um, actually, that that was not how it went. It went in reverse. So the creator of it, he wanted to go with the pilot wave because he was trying to bring back his daughter. So he believed that if he was able to resurrect his daughter inside of the hologram, that it was actually her because there was only one version of the universe. And this, uh, this other coder came up with this version, like, I got to do many worlds, you know. And so the many worlds version apparently worked. So apparently the creator of the series really likes the many worlds version of the universe. And it, it makes sense because it supports the, the existence of a, of a consciousness-based universe. And so you're unique in that sense. But it's not like non-locality doesn't say you're unique. It says exactly that. Yeah. It just doesn't have a good explanation for consciousness. And in fact, no theory we have has a good quantifiable explanation for consciousness. It's true. And, and it's like, you know, and I've been in these debates with these uh, computer science people who are very pro-AI. And their argument is, you know, some of, the, some of these guys – that I've been talking with, and it's mostly guys, you know, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're actually Japanese. And I found a really interesting correlation there. And it's because I think in some of, in some, one of, one of their systems of belief, well, first of all, they have an ancestor system of belief. They actually do believe in, in spirits and they do believe that spirits can transcend into machines. And so the idea that you can have a spirit inside of a machine or a ghost in a shell is a very, it's not a novel concept to them. It's something that right. you can totally see happening. But right. the problem is you just can't quantify it. I right. know that, I know that Andre has a soul if I have a soul. And if he has a soul, I have a soul because we have similar backgrounds. Right. You know, we, we were cousins and we grew up together. Like, so our stories are very similar, you know, but somebody might come along and say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that you guys aren't just clones, you know, right. with some kind of simulated memory system, that none of that happened, you know? You know we take it for granted that that's true. Yeah. So this is yeah. where consciousness gets into a big gray area. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. All right, so um, I'm a little left in the dust. What do you want to say, Dre? <laughs> so no, like I was just going to say, like, uh, we should get into the weeds of, uh, all right, so... Premise being, you know, society collapses or somehow you're engineering a society or a culture from the ground up and you're going to use 
this theorem as part of the fundamental basis of the new religion. Yeah, I think. What, what are the moral implications of something like that? Pro, pro and con. I, I mean, it really <laughs> just starts with the philosophical implications of it. The yeah. philosophical implications of that: the observer is the observed. You know that we're one and the same. It automatically Im- imposes a directive that there should be equality at all levels of any kind of interaction between beings. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that there's a a respect and a reverence that is afforded to you by virtue of your existence, you know, and that your rights are not something that, you know, uh, you have to have enough money to, to, to be able to afford, um, that they're given to you. This idea that you don't get to eat in the tribe because you didn't hunt and all that, that goes out the window. Like, you're right. here. You exist. I exist. We're only here in this form for a short period of time. But we're all mutually connected. We're all interdependent. And, you know, if I don't, if you don't have your rights, I don't have my rights. And that's right. a, just at a basic philosophical precept. And it, it extends beyond humans, obviously. But... If we start then creating systems of value out of that, like the system of value that we have is extremely extrinsic. It it works for maintaining power structures as they are. Like, okay, here's this thing, this carrot I'm dangling dangling on the end of uh, a string for you. Keep jumping for it. Maybe I might let you get a little piece of it. And then when you get that little piece, there's some other stuff down the block that you just have to have because you're not important unless you have these things. If you don't have some level of materialism in your life, you know? And so the system self-perpetuates and it's all based on on external values of, you know, just an externalization of your value system. So your worth, um, your worth as an individual is something that you actually have to uh, go out and uh, and fight for. Yeah, you have to prove you're worthy of existence. You have to prove that you have any worth, right? And then you have to show off that you have no worth. You know, and then, and then it leads to all these other, I guess, the vagaries of society. You know, where there's going to be winners, but there's only going to be a few, and there'll be a whole bunch of losers. And you know, uh, in between people, they're losers too, but they don't really realize it until they get into, you know, uh, some situation <laughs> that they don't have a buffer for. And um, the whole idea that like we can let people fall, we can let people fail, um, is it goes out the window. You know, you. you you won't be able to do that because the basic philosophy that you learned from early on in school was that we, we are basically our brother's keepers. We are our sister's keepers. Like, you know, and if, and if for no other reason, let's say you're the worst sociopath in the world, it affects you. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, so, okay. So when I did a dive into quantum mechanics and started thinking about how that might impact identity or something like that. One of the ideas that I kind of thought of for myself and how to conceptualize of what myself is, is that maybe there's like a prime consciousness, right? That, that there's many, many different versions of where my life could go, but I have essentially one prime consciousness that makes its way through, you know, time and space as I see it. And at any given moment, you know, I could be jumping from one reality to another in order to maintain my life, right? In order to keep going. So, for example, when I have a near-death experience, like uh, when I almost got bit by a snake last Monday, um, there are many realities where I, in fact, was bit by the snake. I did die, 
but because uh, almost of a type of self-preservation, my consciousness jumped to the reality in which I wasn't bit by a snake and I got to keep going, right? So, so that's one thing. But what you're saying here is, no, 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 there is no self. Self is an illusion. Um, it's, in fact, just one big thing. The idea of you being... No, no, there is a self. There is a very clear self. I mean, you know, the, the idea that, that because you're part of a group, because you're a part of a system that, and that you are like the other things in the system, that you're not unique, they're, they're, it's not true that both are, are you know, are, are separate states. Okay. Um, uh, there is an impact that one has on the other. In fact, particles gain more identity by being part of a system. You know, okay. you get a better sense of your place by being in a group of people, of how unique you are. You're, in many ways, you get a better sense of yourself by even repeating what you think or debating what you think with others. Um, oh, it's right. being part of the system and not just being off on your own that really cements your identity. It really cements your place. But that place is probably more malleable than you give it credit to be. Right. Right. Meaning what? How does that like play out? If the system reconfigures, you will reconfigure. Okay. So there isn't, um, so there is nothing says. And you have an impact on the way it reconfigures. It's just not totally uh, reconfiguring on the way you think it should be. Right. So like, like, uh, like, let's say you and I got together and we just started reminiscing about Andre's wedding. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember it one way, you remember it a different way. And our two memories clash, right. They don't seem to fit, but, but we're both right in that sense because we're both, uh, because we both experienced it in that particular way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, that's, that's another example. Let's say we're, to, to tell you the truth, there's going to be some connection between our two experiences by virtue of the fact that we were both at the wedding, that we were both in that same box of the wedding, yeah. means that we're connected. Now, if we had different perspectives on it, we still both saw some things that we can agree on. You know, you were conducting the ceremony and I saw you doing that. So mm-hmm. we can agree on that. There's going to be some things that we can agree on. But we'll have, we'll have different perspectives on it, but we're, we can prove that we were connected because we can talk about these things that that do connect us. These events that did connect us. Yeah, and and those differences really should enhance the knowledge, knowledge and experience of the situation rather than detract from it. Yeah, I mean, it really fills out the whole range, maybe, of different uh, perspectives you could have had on the event. Yeah, it's right. way, way more beneficial and way more sustainable than, say, what we have in politics right now. Where it's, it's just one side. Yeah. yeah. One it's or like the other. cannot exist. And in, in, in actuality, they're not so different, you know. And you really then do have to listen to the other. Yes. You know, um, right. but I, I think it should be. Uh, so to answer Andre's question, I think it really starts with the philosophy. All right. So you, you have you have physics that doesn't violate it, that supports it. You have a philosophical system of equality. Then that gets translated into your constitutions and then into your laws. And then it gets taught in schools at early ages. We've not been taught that. And then there's certain things that like society will just move away from doing. Like we're not going to promote that on whatever system of mass entertainment, mass communication, mass media. We're, We're not necessarily supporting that. Like, you know. It's, it, it, you know, we're not going to overemphasize the stuff 
over the individual, for example, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, it, it, yeah. I was just going to say it is so incredibly fascinating that that I mean, from what little I know about Hinduism, this sounds so much like it in terms of what the sense of enlightenment is and recognizing sure. the oneness of all existence and everything else. And at the same time, India is the 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 world's most intense caste system, right? Like like the philosophy yeah. doesn't necessarily lead to the policy. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's uh, a I mean, continuum in like every faith, you know you know, be your brother's keeper, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, don't cover your neighbor's wife. And like every culture vol- uh, violates their own tenets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Buddha, I mean, he originally started out as a Hindu and, you know, he basically forked Hinduism. Um, at a certain point, he just realized it was, he, he was rich and he had a life that was very materialistic and very fulfilled in that sense. And he gave it all up. But at the, at the end of his journey, he sort of learned that humility was the thing. You know, that right. he had to humble himself to the lessons of the world. And, um, you know, a philosophy like this is very humbling. It's not that you're not an individual. It's that you're an individual and you're a group. You're both. Right. They're two. Yeah. They're, well, you can't separate the, the fact that you're also part of the group. And if right. something happens to you, you can't separate the fact that it happened to the group too. Right. It may seem like right. it didn't. But it's very easy. Like if you start, if you just started with humans, and you started knocking off humans, what's the number of humans you got to knock off before some wealthy person who's very isolated, and uh, you know thinks that they're, uh, you know, in a place where they're completely independent, you know, where they can be a OTG or whatever off the grid, um, before that start has starts having an impact? Because I really do feel <laughs> it's a very short distance between that and the impact on a person who thinks that they're isolated. There is no isolation. Exactly. It's all right. interdependency. Right. It's a real big illusion. And then you can play to that pe- in people because people want that. We want identity. We want our existence here to matter. It's part of, you know, we don't have immortality, but we have this moment. It's part of maximizing the moment for us. And then everything around the system of value is promoting that. It's promoting like, oh yeah, you can be larger than life. <laughs> You're not. You're part of life. You're part of this experience and you're connected with it. And to tell you the truth, you would actually be more rewarded if you were actually a little bit more empathic. See how you feel doing things for others. See how rewarding that is. Is it more rewarding than getting the new stuff? You know? And then start seeing if you can raise generations that are like that. Because if we have generations of people that have a different philosophy and not one that just you know, it, it's, it serves industrialism. It certainly it serves the industrialists who want to sell you stuff. But doesn't it really serve people? No. No, it doesn't no. serve humanity at all. No. No, I mean, we've been talking about that for a while. Not just, you know, me and Dre, but also just as a country. I mean, think about all those people who, you know, vote for their taxes, right? I mean, just vote for their own individual needs and, and you know, fuck everyone else who's going to suffer because of it. But I know that this is the policy that's going to help me the most. Right. And then just the, the, the moral impact of that. Right. Like, right. It's awful. It's awful. Right. Yeah. They vote vote for their own interests. Yeah. But uh, it's so, it's so odd that a lot of their own interests, they're voting against some more important components of their interests. They're just completely voting against for short term gains. See, I mean, you will start getting in systems of economics. There are systems of economics that promote long-term existence 
and a higher level of existence, and others which really promote short-term gain. Like for one, we could uh, we could reconfigure economies to be more energy-based. That's one version. Another version is that we can reconfigure com- uh, economies to be to value humans, to value life more, right. to be life-based. We haven't had those iterations. Maybe they exist in sci-fi novels. But we haven't had those explored yet. We've gone from very pyramidal structures. We're still in one. We're in a form of global slavery, a global economic slavery where people enslave themselves to a dollar. Right. And that's because they don't really have a good philosophy of themselves and their own self-worth. And nothing around them tells them that they're worth more except for like accounting. Oh, what have I got in my bank account? What stuff right. can I buy? It's just accounting. Yeah. And then how, and how does that relate to the person next to me? <laughs> Right. I'm right. better than the it's person next to you. Well, why are you even in competition with the person yeah. next to you? Right. Right. Exactly. You think, you think you're getting over on that person next to you, but the reality is, is that you're just getting over on yourself. Yeah. If we're, if we're an intelligent species that has solved a lot of problems of species existing on the planet, like learning how to resource allocate properly, we don't have issues with, with uh, people being able to eat, have a place to dwell, have healthcare taken care of, access to education. We don't have those issues. In fact, we can look around and say that we have available technologies and available supply chains that can support that. But yet, we're not implementing them. Exactly. It makes no sense. Now, uh, we're working against our own interests. And then we have these politicians who are just ugly actors standing up there telling us, you know, whatever echo chamber they think we're in. And just... You know, and then reinforcing where the right and left have more, way more in common than they have with the people who are promulgating certain beliefs, like the so-called leaders. You know, right? We could vote in our mutual interests pretty consistently across the board. And if we look right now at the political system that we have, I can't even believe that you know <laughs> that, that we've gotten here, like so far away from what the interests are of the people. Yeah. And the Constitution, it was a bit of an inspired document because it drew from a lot of great philosophers that came before it. But we didn't really have a philosophy of of the of existence. We did not include that. Right. You know, that right. was not a part of it. And yeah, we didn't only have certain a, people were real people. <laughs> right. Right. And, and not even just kind of like the execution of the implementation of it, but that they're inalienable they said that there's inalienable rights, but you know, what, who are they afforded to and and where do they come from? Like, what's the underlying philosophy of it? You know, you know, right. Well, if right. I have a right, you have a right, you know, because we're basically the same. But that's not where society was. There was a lot of division in society. There was every ism you can think of. And mm-hmm. even the documents still managed to support a lot of, like, much higher visionary ideas than, than actually got executed. And here we are right now with politicians you're claiming that they're following the Constitution, but really just keeping no. their their own party in in play. Right, right, exactly. And entire swaths of the population who, you know, are are really incredibly angry by that by even the hint of an idea that other swaths of the population should, you know, be able to live in peace. Right? <laughs> yeah, I can't believe to, that people yeah, have a yeah, problem with, with, with equality as an idea. It's, because, it's if you, because if someone's not equal to you, then who are you not equal to? Right. Yeah. It's yeah. so frustrating because uh, politics, culture, religion, economics, these are all just mental games. 
which means we could change the rules of the game and the purpose of the game any minute we want to. And we don't. Yeah, I mean, humanity could seriously just as as uh, you were saying in the beginning, Josh, was that you could just go in a different direction, right? Yeah. You know, and at a certain point of realization, that's why I like that documentary to Zeitgeist because, you know, uh, when it came out, a lot of people, I had been telling people about, you know, money is out of thin air and all this other stuff. Right. You know, dollars lost 95% of its value and people like, uh, whatever. They take my dollar down the store. But the documentary, because anything in the visual medium, especially like stuff that's visual and audio, is so impactful. When they saw that documentary, they were like, oh, I get it. Yep. And it also, also at the same time, we needed to have the banks fail and get bailed. And everybody's sitting around outside of their homes like, why? And how do we get here? And, you know, and then the stock comes out and it says, yeah, the problem is this and that. And really the problem is economics. And economics runs around pretending to be a science that couldn't be further from the truth. Like mathematicians don't even want Nobel Prizes because – not only because the mathematics is something you probably shouldn't be getting a prize for, you know, Um they have their own fields award though, but they, no one, no one gives out a, there's no mathematics Nobel prize, but there is a mathematic, there is an ec, uh, economics Nobel prize. And yeah. it always looks like econometrics. It always looks mathematical. It always tries to be scientific. And it, it's always, it's, it's always not consistent because there's all these black swan events. Just there's things that happen with number series that you can't, you can't incorporate in your numerical system. For economics, but the biggest thing that happens is entropy, and that is the source of all of this stuff. It's mm -hmm. energy. Every basic, you know, second semester engineer knows that the fundamental problem with economics is the second law of thermodynamics. It's it's all about energy. It's all about this is the reason why markets succeed and fail cyclically. You can look at the pattern of what happens in energy before the market fails. Very consistent across the board as a as a tell. And uh, it's because we don't have a resource-based economy, all right? We have an economy that allows you <laughs> to play accounting games, uh, inflate currencies, and do all this stuff that's not connected to the resources themselves, right. the resource allocation. And the right. most critical resource is existence. Right. And then, until we're aligned with existence, and not just existence for some people, you know, that some people have to have this great quality of existence. They need to have a temple, they need to have a tower in the sky for their ego, you know, and look down on everyone else. You know, that kind of existence requires a bunch of other people who are basically losers on that on that yardstick. It's bad for the brain. Yeah. Right. It's just bad for the brain. I mean, uh, you know, I, I would even say to get more specific, the, the greatest, most untapped resource is the brain, right? I mean, it's it's the human mind. It's mind, our ability. Yeah. Yeah, it's our ability to understand and and think and everything else. And you know, we're we're. Uh, I, I think it's probably true it's, that it's not just the human mind. It's not just the human mind. It's everything. It's existence. It's existence. There is existence, and then there is non-existence. Particles come into existence and go out of existence. Right. You know. I mean. Right. You know, antimatter may just be like a kind of an accounting thing for physicists to explain right. why something gets canceled out. But there are particles that pop into existence and pop out of existence. You have done quantum teleportation. That's a real thing. Um, so things pop in and out and pop back in again, you know. So there is a binary state in terms of existence and non-existence. 
and existence is a thing that connects us all. Right. Right. And, you know, right. Kind of like, like, well, you know, we've got a new system that's, you know, it's got it. Equanimity for all humans, but you know, fuck the polar bears. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that's that's not gonna work. So Right, it's, right, exactly. It it comes down to that fundamental you know, creating a philosophical system that's based on existence. And pragmatists would probably hate this idea, but at the same time, nothing is more pragmatic than the actual math of it. And if you sit down and you crunch the numbers you know, and I'm sure it'll go over a lot of people's heads. Like, why do we even need to? Like, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what a double slit is, and what do I care? Was I going to do it feeding my kids and stuff? Like right, that. that's always the, the yeah, response. It's got, it's got everything to feed it because we're going to reconfigure <clears throat> an economy where you have no problem feeding your kids. You have no problem achieving your own personal goals. Oh, that's right, not just, possible. That doesn't seem real. What's not possible about it? Just based off of the assumption, in other words, making it a most basic assumption that, you know, uh, there is no real separation between people and uh, um, no separation between people and things, people and each other, people yeah. and animals, people and everything. Just you are your environment and everything else. And, and uh, you know, by, by harming your environment, you're harming yourself and limiting your life. And so just by that basic assumption, we should therefore want to lift up all things. Exactly. 100%. You know, and uh, this idea that, um, let's say, you, you ask somebody, well, you know, why don't you help your neighbor? Why don't you help your brother? Whatever. And uh, they might respond, well, I'd like to, but I can't, you know, because I'm on my hustle right now and I've got to maximize my economic value. And if I don't, my, my kids don't do this and do that. And like, whatever it was like, okay, your kids are going to be fine. Yeah. Your kids are taken care of. You're your dwelling, your food, it's its all there, you know. Um, is that something that will work for you? Is that something you think it can work, you know, that can work for you? And then you might have people that respond ideologically and say, uh, well, you know, how is that possible? You know, are you just going to hand stuff out to people? Yeah, because people actually aren't doing the work. Now uh, we've got a lot of machines doing the work. Because we're fast approaching that version of society. Where yeah. machines can do a lot of that menial labor, you know, and we can spend more resources putting our minds to how we get machines to do that at a much larger scale. Right. You know? And when we can we can put a human in the loop, but we can also say that humans have the option of maybe stepping out of the loop, you know, and pursuing things that are more human. Yeah, if you ask people even, uh, you know, if all your needs were provided for, you're not going to go hungry, your family's going to be fine, you're not going to get sick, et cetera. Uh, so you don't need the particular job you're at. Is that really the job you want now? Is that what you really want to be doing with your life if you didn't have to do it just to survive? Yeah. And most people will tell you, no, they're not doing what they feel God, quote unquote, put them on this earth to do. They're not feeling fulfilled about it. They're yep. feeling tread under by it. Yep. That itself is a great human tragedy. That is. Yeah. yeah. And I really and people have to feel like that is something that like Maslow's need hierarchy, you know, get all this stuff done, you know, eating and your clothing and all the basics done. And then only when you get all the stuff, do you actually have the opportunity to think about your identity? You can be actualizing finally. What if you could be actualizing right from, you know, second grade? 
Yeah. <laughs> the period yeah. where you can understand what actualization is. I mean, the That's point where you really realize that you're finite, you know, then you start thinking about who you are. And that really happens somewhere around first and second grade for a lot of people, you yeah. know. So you get to define what is meaningful to you in your life. And not have everybody say, well, that doesn't make money and do, 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 yeah. and the other thing. And, you know, and then maybe you just do what people tell you and then you're not happy. Yeah. That's a story that's, for so many of them. That's what's beaten into you from, like you said, first and second grade. I mean, really from day one, you know, capitalism and servitude yeah. and uh, self-devaluation is what's taught, taught to you from the very beginning. So that's why when you're an adult, or one of the reasons why when you're an adult, it's so hard to break out of that model because it's all kind of like baked in. Yeah, think about uh, think about that crazy uh, uh, concept that um, you see a lot of you know in certain uh, realms of Christianity, right? "Quote unquote," the meek shall inherit. I mean, what a ruse, right? I mean, yeah. the, it's like the whole idea of that is to limit the person into you know just kind of staying meek. You know, <laughs> yeah. Don't don't fight back. Don't question authority. Don't yeah. don't do anything. Just just do what you're told. That's yeah, it. yeah, and then you'll inherit in the end, right? That's, in the, that's in the end, in, in, in the afterlife. Oh, nonetheless, yeah, the afterlife. I, I get it now. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah that seems awesome. like a really bad deal. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that sounds like a, a deal Trump would extend to you. I think it always surprises <laughs> me too when I deal with generations of people who've grown up with that as a philosophy, yeah. and they don't think that that it's not only not not only that happiness is not even a something that's on their to-do list, you know, of important things that they want to accomplish, but that even maybe contentment isn't, you know, yeah. that, that maybe even peace isn't like, no, you got to constantly be grinding nose to the grindstone. That's, you know, that's the essence of it. Yes. That is the essence of it. If we were in the wild, what do we live right. in society for? Okay. Right. And when a child is born in society, the child did not ask to be born into society. You don't start taxing that child immediately. Well, you owe us. You born in this, oh, you owe us. You know? It's like being jumped in a gang. You know, you're like, everyone beats you up when you come in the gang. And then they make you put in work, you know, to prove yourself. Like, it's, right. it's, that's gang mentality. It really like, is. Are we going to move fat past the barbarism? You know? Oh, the, through the barbarism comes the great stuff. No, that's not true. People need space to think. That's why so many intellectuals come from upper middle class families. Of course. You know, they have the opportunity to spend the time thinking about really interesting questions. Yeah. yeah. You need that leisure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, it, it's interesting that like, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like that there would be certain environments where, you know, um, Dre and I have talked to this. My, my background is Jewish and Irish and neither of those things were considered, uh, uh, part of the white clan, you know, part of the, uh, part of the white group, uh, originally, but, you know, I sit here kind of saddled with all the white, you know, all the white privilege that, uh, that any white person has. And, uh, I think if I came forward with some of these, with some of these thoughts and ideas, I, you know, I, I'd be kind of shouted down for <laughs> the ideas coming out as my privilege, right? <laughs> like, like, like that, that really is a, is a privilege thing. We don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, see, it does seem to be like, this is from my experience at Catholic school, I guess I went to school with a lot of Irish Catholics and there's a, there's a different idea about what you have to do in order to grind out an existence. You know, mm. some of that probably came from the, you know, one of the many potato famines, but yeah. uh, also just horrible sure. treatment in Europe. 
by yeah. you know other Europeans who thought that they, they were more white and uh, more privileged than than Irish people or people of the of the Gaelic background, mm, right? Um, you know, and it's very it's like you said, it's it's interesting because it's a similar story for Jews, um, particularly in this country. I, you know, back when when Jews first came to America, they weren't even allowed to participate in certain businesses. You right. know, when they had to do jobs that you know, like sanitation, for example. Um, and uh, do jobs that other groups didn't want to do, and it's it's always yep. been kind of like that gang mentality in America. Like you know, you're coming in here, you know, you got to start at the bottom. Uh, we're gonna punk you. Yeah. You gotta, you know, and a bunch of gangsters will then come out of your community too that are really good at doing yep. kind of business. And, exactly, it's like you know, but the we elevate like, the worst. <laughs> the thing about America is it's very binary. Like you'll either fall in one camp or the other. Like either you're light enough to be white, or you're not. <laughs> and you're some and you're other, you know. You know the 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 stereotypes about Jews back in like the early 1900s, yeah. late 1800s, yeah, first coming Irish. What was that? Stereotypes of, of African of people of African descent. It's the same. It's exactly the same. That that's what's so funny because you can find writings about Jews from that time that said that we were all great at music and entertainment and had big dicks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing new in the racist playbook. Yep. No, <laughs> nothing new whatsoever in the racist playbook, man. Uh, fuck. Well, this is blowing. This is blowing my mind. So, so then, I mean, where do we take this from here? Right, climbing into the weeds. Right. Obviously, we see we're looking to create a different type of human understanding. I think of this as you know, really propelling human to the next stage of evolution. Right. I mean, that's that's where um, kind of this is, right? Imagine the world if we could get the majority of people to see it like this. Yeah, I mean, pragmatically, well, well, it does really, I'm going to try to unpack a couple of different things that you said. Getting people to see it probably is a simpler task. Um, it comes down to media. Uh, media mm. is very effective at getting people to see another perspective. It's that dynamic of the medium itself, you know, um, I can, I can get a little bit in the weeds on that, but in general, it's just a great tool for programming the mind to see different yeah. perspectives, especially if you're identifying with the speaker, the narrator, or the main character. Yeah. Soon, you have transported yourself into that world, and right. you can probably be convinced of a lot of things you wouldn't normally see the perspective of. So I do think media is effective, but I also think education is effective. Now, yes. the other thing I want to go back a little bit further is like, okay, so do we need physics to really uh, explore this idea of non-locality and determine whether or not it is – I mean, clearly it's one of the viable explanations for for quantum phenomena, but uh, whether or not it is the prevailing one in order to start incorporating its use in a, a sort of like this social level. And um, – I don't think it needs to be because it was there philosophically for a long time with humans. It's been around, but it's sort of been on the fringes of different spiritual beliefs. And uh, now that it's got some decent support from the science side, you know, you can get some buy-in from people who consider themselves technical, consider themselves scientific, who sure. literally would reject spirituality because I'm one of those people. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know, and I don't reject this at all. It makes complete sense to me. Um, it also makes sense about explaining sort of where my existence will be after this. Um, that I won't necessarily exist in this form at all. 
maybe there's a mind that transcends. Maybe there isn't. Um, that really depends on the fabric of the universe itself. But one thing's for sure is that some part of me still exists and is still connected in one form or another. That uh, at a quantum level, for sure, that's true. And, right. um, and so, you know, if you want to ex- extrapolate from there and, and say, is this a full spectrum belief system that covers your origin, you know, your purpose and where you're going? Yes, it's all there. Now, can you start teaching it philosophically and maybe approach it from, from a direction where it really depends what type of academic environment you're talking about? But let's just say you, you're, you're uh, teaching kids this. It's probably very easy to, to, to put it into a story format that's easily digestible, you know, that, yeah. uh, that you are the other, that there's really no other and that there's this interconnectedness of everything. Yeah. And then from there also media, and then you have a generation of people that grow up that put a little more weight, a little more value on the individual than w- what we've ever had before. And uh, they start they start changing society. They start, you know, uh, amending constitutions. Um, you know, maybe as as a as a planet, we decide that we're not really interested in nuclear weapons anymore. You know, yeah. um, that the idea of war is kind of like. If we have to show up dollars and our money through guns in people's faces, that's probably not a good system, and we start moving away from that. It actually, like Maya Angelou says, this becomes a joke when people talk about war. You know? Yeah, right. And I, I tell you, I see this as a, as a person who just, you know, not only did I was I big in martial arts, you know, but being as a competitor too. Like I love to get in the ring, and I love to compete. But that's all it was to me is competition. I never hated the person on the other side. Never right. wanted to hurt them, you know, out of any sense of malice or anything. Um, just competition. And I, there's right. nothing wrong with that. But there's, there's a problem when I'm, I'm talking about, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that person's life over there so I can take their stuff because I deserve it more than them. And that's right. we have a lot of going on right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, whether it's direct or indirect. Yeah. So it, it, the hogging of resources does, this, does the exact same thing. Well, the hogging of resources, and then you come up with a false narrative about why you deserve it, and those people are less than you, and blah blah right. blah. You know, yeah. so we're going to have to start. Like, we're going to have to pretty much start with another generation, start moving in that direction. Um, yeah, and yeah. it's totally doable because if you look at millennials, they have changed their value system. They don't have our values. They don't have my gener- generation's value system at all. No, know, they're they're all. a hell of a lot closer than we are about that. I mean, they are a lot closer to this than yeah, we are. They are. They, I mean, plus, like, likes are worth more, or at least as much as money. Yeah. What's a like? Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah, that's I, true. And I'm like, how fast did that change in just the span of 10 years? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's worth, and I keep saying, like, you know, it's not worth as much as people think it is, but they've changed your value system to a digital one. And right. it happened really overnight. So it's it's possible to, in a generation, change that. And so right. I, I, that that would be that would be the battle plan. Yeah, yeah, it's a great battle. Plan. You have to go at it with education. Yeah, you have to education, education, and entertainment. Yep. Yeah, I, I will say as a, a small word of caution that the uh, potential flaw in this plan. Is that with any particular scientific theory, it can be later on disproven. Uh, right. So that's that's the one teeny tiny thing. But the big hope is that pinning it on science in general, 
is great because not only do you have to prove it, but science also encourages you to throw out something when it's not real or useful. I mean, there, there are a ton of different ways to, there are a lot of different gateways to get to oneness. You know, 100%. Yeah. A lot of different gateways. I would say, even if you did throw that out, you know, the, the point of origin is still the same. Still mm. similarity. Yeah. Yeah. One way or another, even if, even it's, if it's a multiple universes theory, that, that still plays out. There's still singularity. Yeah. yeah. Still one of- well, even if it, if it wasn't, the fact that it's a spiritual-based or spirit-based universe connects us all just to that level. Yeah, for sure. And, and if nothing else, the one fallback is consciousness itself. Yeah, that's the same thing. We're all yeah. conscious beings, period, yeah. end of story. Right, right. Yeah, but, you know, my problem is still always the hard problem in consciousness. Like, what yes. is consciousness? <laughs> Defining it, proving it, and then that leaves a lot of wiggle room for people to say, well, I'm more conscious than you are. One thing is for certain this, I mean, any understanding like this really does away with a lot of the, not just world's religions, but it does away with a lot of just generally speaking world's philosophies and politics. I mean, you know, we've taught, Dre and I talked about this before. I mean, just, just to criticize my own faith, right? Any faith that, uh, that claims a land to the exclusion of others is probably missing the point, right? Yeah, like right. if, if, if if that's what you're doing, you're, you're placing yourself in a place and you're saying, no, this is ours and it's not yours. So get the fuck off. Yeah. That's, 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 that's missing the point, right? Cause it's denying the, yeah. the oneness of humanity. Any, <laughs> any, any philosophical political system that's an identity based, you know, politic or philosophy is, is going to be undermining, you know, um, just the general oneness that we're talking about here. Right. And so, you know, it, it does away with all those as well, right? I mean, it's that's like, right. Yeah. That's right. Yep. I mean, you can have an identity for sure, but uh, your identity being somehow more important than the next person's identity and your voice needed to be heard more than the next person's, that wouldn't be true. Yeah, yeah. that's the crucial difference. Right, right. And then, and then it, you know, when you take that and then translate it to a political system of laws, you know, what you see is that, you know, generally speaking, you're, you're going to want to create something that to the best of your ability is going to protect everyone's right to, you know, be themselves, per, you know, pursue whatever it is that they that they would like to pursue as long as it's not harming someone else's opportunity to pursue what it is that they want to pursue. Right? I mean, it gets sort of very simple in that way. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some basic inalienable rights that uh, we can all agree on, you know, definitely we can all agree that we deserve to live. You know, um, the one context where I think people would disagree is like, you know, if someone did something horrible to them and they're like, you know, that person, they don't deserve to live. They did something bad to me and my family. But we're talking about a system that has the ability to impact the degree to which that happens anymore. Because right. if, we, if we look at a lot of crime, and most of it's related to money, mm-hmm. from another, right. uh, some degree of, some percentage of it is related to degree of sociopathy and mm. that sociopathy is reinforced by everything around us, you know? Right. We, we almost seem to, to laud over the people who are the most sociopathic and make the most money or the most narcissistic who yeah. make the most fame, you know? Yep. And that seems to be where the reward system is. So of course you're going to have some people where that gets perverted and it goes in a very bad direction. Yeah. So, I mean, we would eliminate a lot of things. We definitely have society. There definitely are societies now and in antiquity 
where these kinds of crimes that we see in these societies did not occur and yeah. definitely did not occur with any frequency. Yeah, I mean, if people... issues, but this is actually, we have to admit that a lot of what we're seeing is related to the kind of society that we have. Yeah, it's, it, it's all hackable. It's like we were saying earlier, if people's basic fundamental needs are provided for and you have a system that encourage you, encourages you to find your, your true self, for, for lack of a better phrase, you know, your identity, your employment, whatever you want to do with yourself, the rate of crime should drop down dramatically. Yeah, it should. Dramatically. Yeah. Um, and then what you're left with there is people who actually are just, you know, wired incorrectly. Yeah, but then you're surrounded by a culture who can, like, put their arms around you and, like, you know, work, work with you on that. So then it will drop down even more. It's never going to go down to zero. You're always going to have a couple of outliers. You're always going to have but outliers. And I, I will make an argument that you probably need those outliers. You There's, do need outliers yeah. in any system. In so, any system. Some, of the, some of whatever is, is driving those impulses, you know, has probably some in some way supported the existence of the human race. Like, you mm-hmm. know, sociopaths are probably really good hunters. They're probably really good at surviving, you know, when, when we need to do that. Um, yeah. Go and kill the other tribe off or something like that. But it comes to a point where that kind of system isn't really that scalable. You know, that right. kind of philosophy isn't really that scalable. And we want to minimize that. And, you know, if you get you get people like that that are, uh, you know, ostracized and, and it's not really promoted in society, the numbers right. are definitely going to go down. Right, because the American system right now encourages sociopathy and psychopathy. So, yeah, we can't have this. So if you just have a system that rewards the opposite, then you're going to curb a lot of those issues as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the sociopath and the psychopath who knows how to pretend will, will, for the sake of their own self-preservation, pretend to be whatever it is that is going to find them yeah, successful. To be. Yeah, exactly. Find exactly. Successful. They'll they'll blend in right. with the do-gooders yeah. because that's, that's right. what gets them the highest that's reward. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, the folks that we'd have to really worry about are the people with like, you know, significant horm- hormonal imbalances that, you know, pushes them to sort of strike out in that way. Right. And, um, and then it's like, no, 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 this is, this is not what we do here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, in, and in a science based culture where everyone's running on all cylinders, we'll probably come up with a lot of solutions for that kind of thing. Of course. Of course. Okay. <laughs> what are we missing? What, are, what haven't we covered in this conversation yet? I mean, that was the goal was to really come up with a sort of a, a spectrum of what this kind of physics principle can, uh, can, can sort of have impact on. Like, does it have impact on philosophy, religion, society, the individual? Is it something that the individual understands, you know, that um, – that I'm connected to everyone and everything? Is it a simple enough message? Is it a repeatable ideology? Is it something that's, you know, provable to yourself? Like, I think, I think it covers all those bases. Like we've yeah. all had experiences where there's a cause and effect to everything that we've done. Of course. And, uh, you know, doing things to others have come back on us and we've seen that. That's one of the yeah. wisdoms of the world. So it's something that I think that people have experienced already and is a framework that they can uh, grasp onto. Um, so if it has all those different touch points covered, it seems like it's a simple enough idea that can have a lot of uptake. Yeah. 
Yeah, and anyone who's experienced any form of love whatsoever, whether it's like love for your children or romantic love or your parents, whatever, has had a moment or two where your sense of self has dropped away and you do feel like you're one with that other person. If only for a moment. And even people who don't have that, like, uh, you know, with actors, they often do this as if exercise. An actor Mm -hmm. can get into a certain place to empathize with a character. They say, you know, as if, right? And they try to explain it in a way or in the context of an experience that the actor would have had. So you can identify it's as if this, it's as if that. So even uh, for the people who are sort of like closed off, there's an as if gateway to it, to understanding yeah. like the other. There is an as That's if. That's interesting. Even if that as if is as is just yourself, not just your loved one. Sure. But it's like sure. you imagine if it happened to you. You know, they they can they can seem to they seem to be able to visualize it happening to themselves. That basic yeah. level of understanding of what it feels like to be in a situation like that is something that can help people extend out from there and. And understand what it means like in general to be in a situation yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think generally speaking, you know, when you're talking about major paradigm shift, it's hard to avoid the clash. I mean, ultimately, you know, folks aren't uh, convinced of the thing just on the merit of it. Usually there's um, at one point there's, like you said, an earlier in this, that at some point it's 51% of the people who believe in it. And then it's 57% and then it's 80% and then it's 98% or whatever, you know, whatever number it gets to, but it takes time and a lot of conflict and challenges, right? I mean, when you look at our world today, you know, it should sort of scare the shit out of us that, you Mm -hmm. know, different folks operating from different paradigms create different educational systems, right? Because what they're saying is we we don't want to send our children to this one because we understand that this one is going to change the way our children fundamentally see the world and it's going to, it's going to be so different from us that we then won't be able to relate to our children anymore. So, you know, you see resistance along those lines, but science is sort of undeniable, except that people still work pretty hard to deny it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah even as they use the byproducts of, of science. Yeah. <laughs> the, the biggest impediments to teaching science is still racism. So yeah. if there's anything that like, detracts from racism <laughs> it's like weird then they don't want to teach it so like evolution like yeah. you can't really reconcile being racist and evolution is real in the same breath so the places that want to be very racist don't want you to teach evolution yep 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 and 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 there's a religious component there too you know i mean yes, uh, i definitely have met my fair share of folks who who only want to believe that the earth is five thousand some odd years old and, and then ask, you know, you ask, well, how do you explain the fact that there are dinosaur bones that we can date to many more years prior to yeah, that? Five and, 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 and there's no debate. What they say is, is that those dinosaur bones were placed there by God to test their fate. Yeah. I didn't know that carbon dating is actually real. And yeah. the response is, I've actually carbon dated something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's always like annoying when uh, you're talking evolution, and they're like, "I didn't come from no damn monkey," and I'm like, "Well, that's great because that's not what evolution says." Like, yeah. I don't know where you're getting your data from. Yeah. <laughs> like, it does not say that at all. Yep. I'm right. like, yeah. So neither did I. Congratulations, like same team. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, however, nonetheless, evolution is quite real. That's right. That's right. No, it's definitely there's no, we're talking idealism here, right? We're talking the, you know, if, if the perfect world was created, what would it look like? And I, you know, I think you're 100% right, you know, this basic understanding. And look, the truth is, 
the 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 arc of history is long, but it does it does tend to bend towards good. I mean, I believe that at least. And you know, there was a time where the images out there that allow it to, you know, that kind of steered in a direction where we can finally end up at a at a good destination because there are definitely dystopian iterations. Yeah, no that we're no doubt, still we're, in the barrel of right now. Yeah, I mean, no, no question. I, who knows what's going to be in the next three months, right? Let alone, uh, you know, 20 years, 100 years. But you think about like, you know, there was a time when the when Aristotle's teachings were so completely radical that, that nobody knew, uh, you know, sort of how to what to do about that. But it but it became a part of the zeitgeist, like you said. And, and, then, and then nowadays, even people who've never read Aristotle, even at all, you know, for the most part, their faith is Aristotelian. Yeah, right. That's that's just that's just what the what the approach yeah, is. So it does. It makes it in there. But what's so painful is that you know a single human life is just like starts in the middle of the story, ends in the middle of the story, and and you don't necessarily see a lot of change. But you know, but the idea being that you know if we can start to plant seeds of these types of thoughts that you're bringing forward here. You know, then ideally at some point it takes over and it just becomes the zeitgeist, right? I, mean, I never really understood why uh, philosophy left curriculums. Um, mm. And certainly I have less understanding of why we haven't taught philosophy at an earlier age to children. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, you have any questions about whether or not people have the capacity to reason or to critically think? I mean, you have to blend down the curriculum. You, know, right. you have to bring philosophy into the discussion. It's, That's right. <laughs> That's right. I mean, in a lot of ways, the first step should probably be to, um, to, you know, to value the folks in society who are having the biggest impact on society, right? So, yeah. you know, teachers should be hands down the highest paid profession in the world. Yeah, exactly. You know, Easily. Start there. Start there. And then what happens is that's where the quality people go. Yep. And then yeah. next thing you know, you've got quality yep. ideas and things like yep. that. Yeah, that's exactly what would happen. If you're in a capitalist system, it's like very easy to like turn those faucets off and on. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, the motivation for, for teaching and the motivation to do things like medicine shouldn't come from money. No. It, it should come from a, from a deeper, more intrinsic place. Like, I, you know, I either you don't want people to go into things because there's a lot of money in it and maybe they're not good at it, but they can, they can, they can play the institutional game. You want the right. people who are really passionate about it to go into it. Right. You know? Right. And I mean, who doesn't want a doctor that's passionate? And yet we have so many doctors that are like in it for the cash. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's so much better to have a world where everyone or mostly everyone is doing the task that makes it just feel like the time is just evaporating and you just can go forever and ever. You just have limitless energy because you're so enthralled and enjoying it. That's right. And that's just not the experience of most people most of the time. You know, I just wanted them to do an episode of uh, Star Trek where – you know, they went back in the past and it was kind of like that weird time when they were transitioning from one society uh-huh. to the next. Because, or, I mean, even Khan's world versus uh, Kirk's world, you know, they they have their form of dystopia, you know, where there's a federation of interplanetary federation and people get to actualize what they want to actualize. You know, uh-huh. they get to be polymathic, you know, right. mathematic. We don't have that right now. Uh-huh. It seems like the polymath no longer exists. But... Um, but in that world, they had those, and I was always like, "Well, how did they get there? How did humanity mm-hmm. get to that place? Was it a verge of like, you know, we were on the verge of self-destruction? This was the only solution. What what caused that change? It was a replicator, right? 
So well, in Star Star Trek, it actually did start with a, a immense war that brought uh, society down to well, I thought it was almost a- going extinct. Yeah. Then it was the warp, and then it was the replicator. After that, the warp and yeah. the replicator. Yeah, yeah. Well, the yeah, science that led the, led the uh, society did collapse first in the story. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But the warp and the replicator, those two things. You know, now you can get off and go far, and and also you don't. You, there's, there's. You're in a post. You would say replicator. You mean the matter energy scrambler? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can make that. You can make food out of whatever. You know, oh, the replicator. Yeah, that, that is just the sad truth about our culture. If someone invented the replicator, yeah, you still have to it. pay for it. <laughs> yep, <laughs> you still have to pay for it. Only have new economies of scale or anything. It just that would yeah, no, it wouldn't be distributed at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man. Well, um, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I have anything else to add to the conversation at this point. You know, um, this definitely uh, is is freaking awesome and uh you know i'm i'm really uh thankful for this and thankful for your time vishnu and always good to get caught up in our second ever conversation in the history (laughs) jerry do you have anything else to add to this at this point no uh just the thing i add to like all these conversations which is my uh, even though this is a thought experiment my sense of urgency about these type of conversations is that change does need to happen and i'm hoping it happens immediately and peacefully because there are you know like rumors and a feeling of like uh, bloody revolutions about to happen and yeah. race wars and all kinds of crazy genocides happening and that's what we don't want to happen because everyone's upset everyone disgruntled and no one's being treated fairly and this is what happens you know it, it can keep going the way it is so yeah our, our- these are all capitalism is an idea you know uh, slavery and racism is an idea. We can change our ideas into a better idea. Yeah, we're 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 on a war footing right now. Our society, we're absolutely on a war footing. I mean, there's just no question that that's. Yeah, I, I I I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the, one of the things for me was, I sort of took a little bit of a pragmatic approach and went basically at the system of value that we have, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't believe that the form of of a value system that I'm involved with right now is even close to what we're talking about here, but it's better than what we have because we have centralized banking. It's it's a huge problem. Centralized banking is what's financing a lot of what's going on in terms of war, in terms of war machines and driving a lot of these kinds of economies. And centralized banking uh, gives, gives a certain group of people, a small group of people, the power to manipulate all kinds of things. And yet you have two sides saying, you know, you're the guys behind the curtain. You're the guys behind the curtain. And it's neither one of them. Mm-hmm. It really comes down to like who prints the money yep. is printing value. Yep, and true. We, needed to, we need to move away from that system of value into a new one. That's, you know, part of the reason why I got involved with a lot of the stuff that's going on in the blockchain world. But I, I've also noticed that, um, you know, uh, even though it's less centralized, it's still centralized. Power yeah. is still pooling. It's still pooling around. It's transferring money, but it's still pooling around the people who have the most, with the exception of the early people who got in who were kind of like the believers. Like if Satoshi were to come along tomorrow and decide that he wanted to crash the Bitcoin network or take it to the next level, with the amount of coins that he's had, he holds on to, he could do that. The bankers right. would run right out of it, you know? Like, literally, would, 
you know, if the if the World Bank decides that they want to hold larger than ten percent crypto assets, and this guy comes out of hiding, you know, uh, with a, with a million coins, it's they won't have, the, the power will shift. And I thought that at least having the ability to shift the power back over to a system that's maybe built in math that is accessible to more people. Mm-hmm. That it has a, a fair way of creating value. I mean, people say it's out of thin air, but it's not. It's using energy. It's moving energy from right. one state to the other. Yeah. And there's a finite amount of it. Scarcity always works on humans. And yes. <laughs> and, like, and like you gotta, you gotta kind of like spread the property <clears throat> of scarcity of existence because it's so mm. because scarcity always works. It has value. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, that's a great way of looking at that. I, I, I knew, I knew that these, uh, the, the, like the millennial crowd, is going to move towards a different system of value, and I think yeah. at least in part, it has to do with numbers, it has to do with math, it has to do with machines, and uh, so I feel like I've, I've, you know, I've at least taken the first step towards what my personal goal would be. The next one would be to start producing the kind of media that we're talking about here and putting it out yeah. in a way that, you know, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shit, I'm on board. Anything you don't want me to do to help out with that. I'm there. Yeah. I have, uh, I, I personally, you know, when you look at like the patterns of history and things like that, I mean, my gateway to understanding humanity is usually been through art and history, you know, and, and when you look at like how revolutions happen, you know, what you have is you get this, the zeitgeist of young people who've got new ideas and then inevitably an older, more established, wealthy person kind of jumps in front of the group and then um, guides the revolution, either violent or not, into basically exactly the same place that it's been. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think and I and I think we're and that's, that's not an accident. No, no, no. Exactly. That's definitely not exactly. an accident. You know, that's it's really a purposeful thing. But I think that there is a difference now in that, you know, we've kind of come to an end of our narrative arc where where that's acceptable anymore to young people. You know, how many generations have we said that it's too late, you know, environmentally for the planet, that we're seeing all these awful changes? And I think if nothing else, just the environment is going to is going to, you know, cause a lot of young people to look up and say, you know what, actually, we maybe that's we're going to actually take over this shit and do it differently um, and not listen to you old people, you know. So the I'm actually very encouraged by the OK Boomer movement, you know, yeah. <laughs> of that kind of mindset, because I think those kids aren't aren't going to sort of fall for it, if that makes sense. The stakes are too high, you know. Yeah, we're killing ourselves on the planet. No one has time for their stubbornness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of where I draw my hope from. But. It's also incremental steps, right? It's just incremental steps. So, and it's going to have to end up being inclusive of the boomers as well. Of course, yeah. And it yeah. is. It is a sad truth that older can't leave anybody out. Have a real yeah. hard time learning new tricks. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if you're here on the planet long enough, you know the planet is constantly changing. Okay. And I've had so many people who are like, "I'm not changing. I'm not changing for anything. <laughs> this is the way." Yep. Well, you're changing. Yeah. <laughs> whether, you, whether you want to or not. Yeah. I mean, you change just by saying that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. All right, man. Well, uh, do we feel comfortable me pressing the stop record button, or, or does anybody have anything else we want to say? Yeah, yeah? sure. All right, here we go. Stop recording.